Well, Happy New Year. If we turn into your scriptures, Luke chapter 11. We're going to spend January in this prayer that we read in Luke 11, 1 to 4, and then we'll be back in John in February. Now, next week, we'll be, I'll be out uh, on mission, and on the 22nd, I won't be here, but here on the, on the 1st, on the 15th, on the 29th, we're going to look at this prayer, and then we will begin back into John chapter 9 in February, but the reason I, I've chosen this past, this is the month where we have our prayer week. And I have always known Lakeview as a praying church. I mean, I think Lakeview prays more than most churches. But again, uh, being a praying church is like sanctification. You don't reach your destination until glory. And so we can grow and we can mature in our corporate prayer as well. And so my prayer is that as we consider this passage, the Lord will use it to sanctify us in the area and in the discipline of prayer. You know, there are 128 verses in the Bible that has the the word prayer in it. Get this. There are approximately 650 prayers in the Scripture. 450 answered prayers. J.I. Packer says that prayer is the spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. H.B. Charles says that prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. So spiritual measure, J.I. Packer, objective measurement, H.B. Charles, that's prayer. And that's why I want us to spend January in this important prayer from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you for the model, the example, and the challenge. We pray over the next, next few weeks, you would grow each one of us in our fervency and our dependency on you. That you would teach us how to pray even better. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Rwandan genocide was the 1994 mass murder of around 1 million Rwandans 
over the course of just three months, 20% of their population was massacred. It was the culmination of a long time ethnic competition and, and tensions between the minority Tutsis who, who controlled the nation for, for centuries and the majority Hutu peoples who, who had come into power through a rebellion that began in 1959 and extended through 1962. One of the survivors, and I read her autobiography, her name is Immaculee Ili Bagiza. Um, her world collapsed all around her when every single member of her family was slaughtered during that three-month period. And the only way she miraculously survived was that she hid with seven other women in a bathroom that was three by four, a very small bathroom, eight women in a pastor's home for 91 days. They didn't come out of that bathroom for 91 days and they could not make a sound. The alternative was death by machete. And it was during this time of desperation that she learned, she said, how to pray. In fact, she said she prayed 15 to 20 hours a day. Why? Well, she said that even in that crisis, she experienced like she had never experienced before, the love of God the Father, his fatherly care through the provision of our mediator, the Son of God. And she realized that she was desperate and completely dependent on this fatherly care that she knew and was experiencing through the Son of God. And that's how she learned how to pray. And I would submit to you, that's where all true prayer is birthed. Where God opens our hearts to his love through his Son, and he removes the scale from our eyes where we see we're truly desperate. We're not self-sufficient. We're truly dependent. And that's the heartbeat of the prayer that we see in Luke chapter 11. What could aptly be called, I call it, kingdom prayer. You could call it the disciples' prayer. But why do I describe it as kingdom prayer? Well, because Jesus, in his first advent, we've been considering that over the previous weeks during Christmas season, is inaugurating the kingdom of God where God's rule will be communicated through King Jesus, the son of David. He's inaugurating this kingdom and he is teaching us in this section of Luke what it means to be a disciple in this kingdom. And so in chapter 10, just for context, most immediate context, he teaches us that to be a disciple in the kingdom means you have to, you must love God and you must love your neighbor like the good Samaritan. 
And then he teaches us that to be a disciple in this kingdom, we must sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his word like Mary. And now here in chapter 11, remember that chapter division was added later. Luke didn't give us this chapter division. He teaches us that a, that a disciple in Christ's inaugurated kingdom is a person of prayer. Now, most of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The reason I chose this one over that is just, that would have taken me months. And I want us to just to be here for a, a few weeks. But it's clear that the prayers are similar, but it's, there are some distinctions. For one, this is a shorter prayer, uh, which I find as freeing. And here's the reason I see this as freeing. It teaches us that it was not Jesus' intention that to pray, we have to say the, say the same words in the same way every time. Having said that, there's certainly a pattern that you see that's common between the Sermon on the Mount and this prayer, which was taught at a different time. And the first thing we see in this prayer is that kingdom prayer, you could say the disciples' prayer, is a taught prayer. It's a taught prayer. Look with me in chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as, G as John taught his disciples. Now there's no reason to believe that the disciples had not prayed up to this point. Certainly they were a, a praying group, but it seems obvious that having observed Jesus pray, they felt that their prayer life was not cutting the mustard, was not up to snuff, if you will. It wasn't where it should be. Strangely, I feel encouraged um, by reading this because I often feel the same way. There was a survey that was published in the past years that says that the average professing evangelical, and I say professing because just because you're a professing evangelical doesn't mean you're born again, but the average professing evangelical prays three minutes a day. And that includes praying at mealtimes. And... Uh, when you consider that when they pray, they generally pray just for their most specific, immediate, and material and felt needs, it's very clear that we need to be taught how to pray. Now, why would the disciples make this request? Well, it doesn't tell us explicitly, but I think we can make some strong inferences from the passage. First of all, um, they were following Jesus. They were committed to Jesus at this point in their own unique and strange way. They're growing in their commitment. But they were following Jesus. And, and when you follow Jesus, your love for and the desire to commune with God will grow. It will grow. When you follow Jesus, your desire to commune with God will grow. Psalm 27 verse 8, you have said, seek my face, 
My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Our desire to commune will grow. That's evidence of spiritual life. That's evidence of following Jesus. The second reason I believe that they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray is that when you follow Jesus, you'll be on the front lines of mission. It may not be like Brooke and Samuel. It may be in your workplace, but you'll be on the front line of mission when you follow Jesus. And when you are on the front lines of mission, your prayer will not be so much an intercom asking your butler for a softer pillow. It will be a wartime walkie-talkie. That's what happens when you follow Jesus. Because on the front line of mission, you are awakened to your weakness, to your impotence, to your dependency, your, your insufficiency, your desperation like nothing else. Psalm 86, the king, who's very aware of his desperation, given the role he's been entrusted with, cries out, I am poor and needy. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Well, let me give you a third reason that I believe they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Jesus had demonstrated, like no one else in the history of the world, both his perfect love and his dependence on his Father, on God the Father, as seen in his active prayer life. So just in Luke, in, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, uh, he is praying as the heavens are opened at his baptism. In Luke chapter 5, it tells us that, and this is many occasions, he, he drew away, he, he went to the lonely place to pray. Chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus spent all night in prayer before he chose the 12 disciples. In chapter 6, verse 28, he, he teaches the people to pray for those who abuse them. That's countercultural. In chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus is praying alone before he asks the crowds, who do you? Say that I am. And then later in that chapter, he is praying on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in chapter 10, verse 2, Jesus prays before he commissions the 72 to go out with the gospel. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed prayer, the disciples are reasoning, how much more do we? And we could turn that to us. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to pray, how much more do we? Now, typically when we think about Jesus' ministry, we think about uh, his teaching ministry, his, his preaching ministry, his healing ministry, his works of compassion and, and, and miracles and, and signs interspersed with moments of prayer. But you could truly turn that around and say, Jesus' ministry was a a ministry of prayer interspersed with moments of teaching and preaching and acts of compassion. If we believed what Jesus knows about prayer, 
it would turn our schedules upside down. If we believe what the Bible says about prayer, it's likely we would pray more than we do anything else. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And no prayer reveals that any more than this prayer. Now, it has two movements. The first movement is centered on God himself. We'll look at that this today and the next time we gather in this passage. The second part of the movement is focused on our, our individual and corporate needs. But we're going to look at the first movement today that is focused on him, his name, his glory. So we've seen that kingdom prayer is a, is a taught prayer. But for the rest of our time, we're going to see that it is a family prayer. It's a family prayer. We're going to see that in just the first part of verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Now we're just going to center here on the name Father for, for today. And then we'll come back to the rest of that next time. And let me say before we get into this, that with the rise of feminist theology, began in the 1960s, there has been this movement to change the name of father to mother. It's a strong movement. You may not be aware of it. I'm grateful if you're not. But it's a strong movement. There's a whole lot of conferences out there that are pushing this. Now we have to, to acknowledge that there are metaphors that are feminine metaphors to speak of the Father's care for us. So, so for instance, uh, you see in Isaiah 49 that he's like a nursing mother. That's a metaphor that, that speaks of his love and devotion and care for us. Or you see in Matthew 23 that he's like a, a hen brooding, or brooding over her chicks. But these are metaphors. But that's a whole different discussion than naming God the Father as God the Mother. Now, God the Father does not have a biological gender. Each one of us do. You're born with your gender. He does not have a gender. But he has chosen to reveal himself throughout the scriptures as king, not queen, husband, not wife, and father, not mother. And the act of naming someone is an act of authority. So God has named himself that. We do not have the authority to rename him. With that said, the Israelites rarely addressed him. As father, Isaiah 63 verse 16 is one exception. Where did they learn about this God? From the pen of Moses, who in that burning bush account asked God, what is your name? And he says, my name is the Lord. This is my name forever. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. That settles it. The central reality of this God, of who he is, is he is Lord and that is confirmed by their great 
confession, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But to come to God as Father would have been seen as a bit scandalous to the Israelite ear. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that one of the great expressions of his lordship, he's Lord, is that he is our Father. That should blow our minds. It should encourage us. It should stun us were it not for our familiarity, over-familiarity. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. The God of the universe, the God who made the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the ten plagues and the Red Sea, the God of the glory cloud in the tabernacle, the God who shakes the cedars of Lebanon, the God who showed himself to Daniel as the great ancient of days, the God before whom no one can stand face to face and live. Jesus wants us to call this God Father. But we must be careful how we define the fatherhood of God. Unfortunately, there was a move in the late 19th century and early 20th century by liberal theologians to argue that he is everyone's father, the universal fatherhood of God, without regard for any relation to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. He is your father. Uh, we sang that wonderful song this morning that I am a child of God. And the liberals would have said, that doesn't matter whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. We're all God's children. Universal fatherhood. Of course, there's a sense in which this is true. In Acts 17, we're taught that we are the offspring, all of God's image bearers, all humans are the offspring of God. So in a common grace sense, we might say that everyone could call God Father, but here's the problem. Since Adam's fall, each and every one of us is born into a state of sin and misery. Paul describes us as being alienated from the life of God and enemies to him by our wicked works. So we are by birth and by choice born as spiritual orphans. And that is our biggest problem in life. We are naturally spiritual orphans. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 9, or John says in John chapter 1, yet to all who receive him, that is Christ, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. In order to have God as our Father, we must have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And once we receive Christ, that alienation between us and God is removed. Christ has made reconciliation for us, 
and we come into the Father's family by his adopting grace. And to help confirm this, to help us know this, more and more he gives us the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, you ladies may wonder, I'm not a son, I'm a daughter. But remember, it was the sons who had the the right of inheritance. So metaphorically, you are sons in Jesus Christ, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you see what a miracle that is? It required the omnipotent third person of the Trinity to rewire our hearts to the point where we would cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it's on the basis of God's love for us as our Father through the Son that we can come to him in this way in prayer. And so in one sense, uh, God has a, a kind of common grace, fatherly care toward all his creatures. Many unbelievers today uh, were awakened to common grace mercies. The fact that their heartbeat was, was functioning rightly. The fact that they had taste buds to enjoy their meal the fact that their lives were preserved one more day, one more year, that's, that's an expression of God's common grace, fatherly care. But God is properly father only to those who come to him in the Son of God, the elder brother. And his fatherhood becomes the basis and governs everything else that follows in this prayer. That's why we have to spend this time in that. Prayer to the Father reminds us that we are adopted heirs and will never, ever again be left alone to the impoverished resources of our own strength and our own wisdom. Praise God for that. Unfortunately, our default setting, our default setting is to not live, even as believers, in light of his gracious adopting of us. Our default setting is to have an orphan mentality. And it has devastating effects. Some of you have heard this but when we adopted Sifan, and I got his permission to tell this story. When we adopted Sifan, and we brought him home in March of 2017. The first question he asked me, he said, can I call you dad? And I said, you better call me dad, I'm your dad. <laughs> but because of his horrific situation, by no fault of his own, he had a hard time believing that. About a month after we had him in Louisville, 
Um, he got caught sneaking a snack, which every child in here has done, so don't judge him. <laughs> and every pastor in here has done that. <laughs> and he knew he was going to be in trouble. And so he ran away. Now, when I say he ran away, not like Opie. Opie planned to come back all the while. He ran away to a different county and took a boxing glove. One of my boys' boxing, yeah, my boys have boxing gloves, um, or they did. He took a boxing glove with him. I asked him later, why'd you take a boxing glove? He said, because I thought I might have to kill something to eat. I mean, he was serious about running away. We went to a home, and he, he came to the door of the home, and they, they asked him, what, what, what are you doing? What, what are you, why are you here? You're a young kid. And he said, I need a new family. Well, they knew enough to call the police. The police brought him back to us. And when he came in the house, I asked him, I said, son, you love being in this home. You've told us that numerous of times. You're happy. Why did you run away? And he said, because when I thought when you found out that I had stolen a snack, you were going to give me away. And I said to him, do you know what your problem is? You still think you're an orphan. And you're a son. And until you start thinking like a son and believing that you're a son, you're going to act like an orphan. And then I had this epiphany. That's my problem too. When I struggle with anxiety or fear or discontentment or ingratitude or jealousy or bitterness or slander and gossip, I'm thinking like an orphan rather than what I am, a son of God. But the Lord, if you are a believer here this morning, has adopted you into his family. And now, as your father, he has committed himself. His name's on the line. The name Father. Now, there's some deadbeat fathers in the world. Not this one. He has committed himself. He has bound himself to being your infinitely resourceful, caring God. And our natural default setting is the orphan mentality. And that needs rewiring, doesn't it? This prayer is the means of rewiring. Let's pray. Father, we really, we don't know much about praying. We're good at talking. We're good at gossiping. We're not good at praising. 
We want to be sincere, Lord. And we want to have you deal with us where we really are. We also have many selfish ambitions. But as we begin this 2023 year, in Christ and by the Spirit, we really want to grow. We want to be different. We ask you for grace. We ask you to send your Spirit to cleanse us and give us new joys that are reflective of our adoption. New fellowships with you. Lord, new eyes to see and behold you. That you indeed are our Father. You are our infinite provider. We desire a new glory in Christ as we begin this year. Our elder brother through whom we are adopted. Lord, we pray, revive us. As we begin this 2023 year, change us. Make us different. That we might be the vehicles of your kingdom in this present age. But Lord, we thank you that we know you as Father. And I pray by the Spirit, you would give us eyes to, uh, to see and hearts to understand all that that entails. We have been received in the number and have all the rights and privileges of sonship. Lord, if we truly believe that, that will help us overcome our anxieties. It will help us overcome our fears. It will help us overcome our discontentments and jealousies, our ingratitude, our bitterness. We thank you that we know you as Father this morning. And we ask you, your grace for us in this new year in Jesus Christ, whose name we pray, amen. As we come to our time of commitment, this, as I've already communicated, this prayer is a prayer for believers. There is, a, there is a, a kind of discrimination that does take place in the scripture. Uh, we, when we think of the word discrimination, generally we think of it in, in sinful terms because much of what we discriminate against is, is, a, is due to our sin. But the Bible discriminates in this, in this sense. You can't come to a God who is infinitely holy and righteous unless you are made fit to approach him. And there's only one way to be made fit. There's only one way to know him as father. It's through the elder brother, the son of God, who came as our substitute and lived the life you could never live, fulfilling the law. And then he went to the cross and he satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. And then he was raised from the grave. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you'll humble yourself, confess your sin, repent of it, and flee to Christ... You can know God as your father. The only other option is to go through this broken world as an orphan. Who wants that? Come to Christ as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. 
If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.